Great. Well, if this is your first time with us, I, I hope you're just feeling right at home, and um, our hope is that you'll be encouraged this morning by the Word, and uh, that um, you'll be challenged, too. Um, we are going to intentionally lean into some familiar and then some not-so-familiar concepts in an effort to kind of like, you know, disturb the, the waters a little bit and uh, cause us to think about some things that we often kind of run right past, and then ultimately, hopefully, um, apply the truth to our lives in a way that, that makes a real difference, all right? So I'm, I'm glad you're here. God bless you as you, um, and, and may God bless uh, both the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart this morning. Amen. Well, I was surprised to hear that he was moving to California. Uh, we were sitting together at a camp in northern Wisconsin where for like seven generations, or seven decades, not generations, like 70 plus years Thousands of people have testified to encountering and experiencing the presence of God. And he had come to this place with that hope as well, but he was disappointed with his experience, and so he was going to search out another experience in another place. And when I asked him why, uh, he said he was disappointed with his experience. You know what it's like to feel disappointed with your experience, right? Yeah. Um, so his response his experience wasn't uncommon uh, to, 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 to a certain degree. It was uncommon in that place because a lot of people in that place had had this powerful experience. He had not, which was uncommon, but his, his response to that experience was a very common response. He was leaving, right? Being disappointed in one experience, he decided to go pursue another experience, and when I asked him um, why, he said, I, I, I need to experience God. He hadn't in Wisconsin. He was hoping to in California. And what saddened me about the uh, interchange or the exchange with him was his restlessness. Uh, he, he, he reminded me of uh, like, a, like a rambler. Like more focused on the road than on the destination. I wondered if he would find what he was looking for by traveling 3,000 miles west. His seeking seemed, frankly, more like wandering to me. And so I was a bit saddened by the whole thing. And um, to dive right into the theological foundation behind the conversation, I would say this, that the core theological flaw, if you can put it like that, in his rationale was this, God is not somewhere else. God is not somewhere else. One of the core characteristics of God, according to the Bible, is that God is not limited to a location. So throughout the history of the people of Israel, there are certainly examples of where God reveals himself in specific locations, and sometimes the way he reveals himself is unusual. Like there's the tabernacle, which is sort of a mobile sanctuary that the people of Israel set up wherever they go as they travel around in the desert, and God is known there. And if you're looking for God and you can't find God, then you know where to find him. He's in the tabernacle. And then later, they kind of established this more permanent place. It's called the temple. And there's a holy place in the temple, and this is where God's presence is said to dwell or to rest or to live. But unlike other gods of other nations, 
that were limited to specific regions or specific monuments or specific creations or idols or um, you know, man-made objects. The God who was revealing himself to the whole world through the Hebrew people was not a God who was limited to a specific location. Yes, he was here, but he was also everywhere. People were encountering him in the tabernacle, in the temple, but they were also encountering him all over the place. The theological word for the concept I'm talking about is omnipresent, which means God is everywhere. God is always everywhere. One of the most beautiful, as well as one of the most challenging ramifications of the Bible's assertion that God is omnipresent or everywhere is that God is always here. Why is that beautiful? It's a beautiful ramification because it means that I can experience God wherever I go. Why is it a challenging ramification? It's a challenging ramification because it means that God can be experienced right where I am, right now, right here. So let's look at Genesis chapter 8, chapter 28 together the end of the first book of the Bible here on page 19 in here. Um, A little background, God calls this man named Abram to begin this new nation. His name is changed to Abraham. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And we're going to read about the story from Jacob's life. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10 on the bottom of page 19. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Yes, that's where the song comes from. Stairway to heaven. Verse 13. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." I am with you, I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. So what's going on here? A lot of background. Essentially, Jacob's on the run. He has been manipulating the system, scheming for personal gain in a misguided attempt to grasp God's blessing, God's favor. Motivated by selfishness, he has lied to his father. He's manipulated his own brother, and then he gets caught. And so now he's on the run. And he's exhausted from running, and so he falls asleep on the side of the road, and he dreams about a stairway to heaven. And in the dream, God reveals God's plan for Jacob, who has trying to be, who's been trying to do things his own way. 
But in the dream, God reveals his plan for Jacob and he reveals his plan for the place where Jacob is. And Jacob's famous realization upon waking is this, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Which sounds like a wonderful, praise-filled declaration. At least that's how it's commonly used in poems and in hymns. But in fact, it is not that. Rather than joy, it is fear that is gripping Jacob's heart in this moment. Verse 17 says, he was afraid. So what had seemed the night before, like just this inconsequential rest stop on the road, I mean, the only reason he stops is because it's, it's nighttime. The sun has set. There's nothing special about this place. But now he understands this place to be awesome, the very house of God. So here's what I want you to see in this. Experiencing God in this place was not what Jacob expected. Simple. Simple. Experiencing God in this place was not what Jacob expected. He's surprised. He really shouldn't be surprised. Why shouldn't he be surprised? Because God is not somewhere else. God is always right here. Okay, so that's one story that reveals the truth that God is not somewhere else. There are probably a dozen stories in Scripture that have essentially the same message. Here's a poem, in case you prefer poetry to narrative, that also declares the same truth. The reality that God is not somewhere else might even be more powerfully communicated, in fact, through poetry or through a prayer. Here's Psalm 139. This is a prayer of David, who's much later than than Jacob, and he's the king of Israel. Excuse me. This is what he says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David prays, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the, uh, on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The right hand of God is symbolic of the powerful presence of God. No matter where I go, heavens, hell, east, west, north, south, Your hand, your powerful presence will watch over me and will guide me. Now, clearly in this context, David is reflecting on the joyous wonder of God being everywhere. And that's a message that we often celebrate. We love the accessibility of everywhere. Isn't that great? Isn't that convenient? It leaves all the options open. We love that. We want accessibility. We freak out when we don't have accessibility. Like when there's no cell service, people start getting itchy. It's just, this is not permittable because I don't have access. I think probably the most um, like emotional question about spirituality that I've been asked in this place is not, what is God's will for my life? It's, what's the Wi-Fi password? I mean, if people ask me that, like, this is a bit super urgent on my way up to preach, oh, oh, real quick, what's the, what's the Wi-Fi path? We got to have access, right? We got to be connected. We love the idea. We love the idea that God is everywhere. <sighs> Sweet, right? That's super convenient to me. I can access God wherever I am, at home or at church, at the beach, in the mountains. Isn't this convenient? Totally. It's amazing. But there's also a potentially less convenient side to this coin. The sometimes less than joyous reality is this, that God is not 
somewhere else. In other words, if God is to be found by us, he is to be found right where we are. And that, my friends, is where it begins to get challenging. If God is everywhere, as the Bible clearly reveals, then the less convenient truth is that God is also right here. And if God is right here, then perhaps I should stay. Perhaps I should stay. Let me talk to you a little bit about place. The college student in northern Wisconsin who was disappointed in his experience in one place and hoped for a better experience in another place was way too focused on place. Just way too focused on place. It's important to realize that the reason to stay in a place is not the place ultimately because places change. Somebody's here today and last time they were here, this place was another church with another pastor. Places change, right? Now, the reason to stay in a place is not the place. The reason to stay in a place is that God is in the place. That's the reason to stay. God is not somewhere else. God's presence extends to every place, and so God can be known there. The place or the specific places, man, they can be incredibly important to us personally, right? A couple, couple of thoughts on... We're going to talk more about the importance of place in a couple of weeks, but let me just say this for now. We talk about thin places, places where God seems to be near. We talk about familiar places. I just feel at home here. We talk about holy places. You walk in a room and, oh, something's different in this place. Like this camp in Wisconsin, very important place for my daughter, very important and significant place in her life. But the real value of the place is that it can serve as a specific context or a container in and through which God makes himself known. That is the real power of a place, is that the place can, be served, can serve as a container through which, in which, God makes himself known. Jacob builds an altar on the side of the road in Genesis 28 where he crashes for the night, not because the place in and of itself is special, but because he encounters God in that place and therefore that place means something to him. It contains something for him, so he builds an altar. So the place serves as a container for the presence of God. So on one hand, you're like, look, it's just a container. The container in and of itself isn't that important. It's what's in the container that matters. And then on the other hand, you know what? It's, it's not just a container, right? Because the container itself becomes important. So the essential truth is that God is always here. That's important. But what's but it's almost impossible to know that essential truth if you don't have any tangible examples of stability that declare that essential truth to you over and over again. If we're always moving to new places, we have nothing to point to as an example of stability, a tangible physical example of that constancy, that stability of the presence of God. And we need that. So on one hand, you know what? It's just a container. The container doesn't matter. It's what's in the container that matters, the presence of God. And yet, you know what? We're people. 
We're humans. We need the container because we have such a hard time recognizing the presence of God in and of itself. We need that container to look towards and say, okay, there's an example of stability. And if we're always moving, our context is perpetually changing, there's little we can point to as a physical example of the stability of God. I need physical examples of that. I need to stay put long enough to begin to unpack the reality of the God who is always there, who is stable, the God to whom I can always return because he hasn't moved. I know where he is. I need physical examples of that truth. First really dynamic memories in my mind are of a place, or of a place, are of 8280 Woodman Lane, this little three-acre piece of property that my parents bought when I was four years old. We built a house there. We built a barn there. We built fences there. We dug trenches in the ground. We put pipes and irrigation in. We worked and we played there. We raised pigs and chickens and sheep, and I had a horse there. Uh, where, that's where I grew up. It's the house I left to go to college. It's the only place I've ever, ever really returned to as home. It's the reference point for my, my whole childhood. And after more than 40 years, my parents still live there. It's still where our family gathers. It's still what we kind of refer to as home. The trees are much bigger. They cast longer shadows. The old barns have faded. They're sagging a little bit. Grandkids now discover all those cool places in the creek down in the gully. But the place is still there. The place still serves as this tangible expression of stability. And it helps me believe what's true about God. That's the value of it. It helps me believe what's true about God. All right. So to kind of sum up what we've said so far, we started talking about this big ethereal concept like everywhere and here, which is almost impossible to get our heads around. So then we, I shared just a little bit about specific location, specific particular place, what makes it valuable, and, and yet the value of it itself. And, and I just want to add to that as a final thought, this beautiful relational concept, okay? So we've talked about ethereal, we've talked about particular, now let me just throw in some relational, and it's this beautiful concept we call with. With. The nature of the relationship into which you and I are invited by God is sometimes called the covenant, which means the promise. God's covenant with Israel that we read about over and over again in Scripture um, and then we realize with unprecedented tangibility in the incarnation and in God becoming flesh and God becoming a person is the reality that God is with us. God is with us. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the covenant. That's the promise that God makes to the people of Israel. And the notion that God is with us makes all the difference in the world. It just makes all the difference in the world. Let me give you three quick examples about that. One example is that when Moses, who leads the, the slaves out of Egypt into the desert, then dies right before they go into the promised land, he's passing on leadership to his apprentice, Joshua. This is what he says to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Joshua saying, why not? Moses says, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Another example, David, much later, king of Israel. 
He is giving you an inside look into his deepest, darkest days. He says, even though, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Have you ever thought about that? He's not just in the shadow of death. He's in the valley that's in the shadow of death. He's lower than that, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? Because you are with me, he says, in prayer to God. And in fact, we are told in Scripture like over 300 times, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And there's only one reason we're ever given why we shouldn't be afraid. Because God is with us. The only reason we're ever given. God is with us. A third example. Being here with us is such a core characteristic of God that in telling the birth story of Jesus, in telling the arrival story of the Messiah, Matthew in the New Testament refers back to this old prophecy from Isaiah about this experience. And he says, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? This is core. Who is this God? He's the God who is with us. It's this essential reality to to the person of God. What's the message? The message is this. God is with us in this place. That's the message. Super simple and totally life-changing. God is with us in this place. We can experience God at home or at work. We can experience God at work or at school or at church. We can experience God in Wisconsin or we can experience God in California. God is here. God is not somewhere else. Wherever I am, God is. Amen? Amen. All right, good. Uh, let me give you one practice, one real simple practice. And I'm going to push on you a little bit here because I want to make you think. I, I want to invite you to consider the words that you're praying. And I want you to consider st- Consider this. Stop asking God to be with you. Stop asking God to be with you. It can be easy to reinforce harmful beliefs or inaccurate theology with the words that we use and the phrase that we often, myself included, default to when we're kind of tired or lazy or aren't thinking about anything more articulate or important to say or meaningful. We say something like, oh God, just please be with me. And I want to be clear to say that there's nothing wrong with this prayer, uh, with asking God to be with you or to be with your mother or to be with your kids. It's not that it's an incorrect prayer as if something could exist. It's not even an unbiblical prayer. In fact, there's a place where Moses prays something almost exactly like this. He's facing a seemingly impossible challenge, and he prays to God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us there, which is essentially uh, Moses praying, God, please be with us. Asking God to be with you is understandable. Asking God to be with you is certainly not bad or wrong. I'm just going to challenge you by saying this. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. God is already with you. Okay, He's already here. He's already there. And my concern, friends, as a pastor with encouraging people to pray, God, please be with me at school today, is that it reinforces the the suspicion that he's not. Okay? Because I'm not feeling God at school today. And, And my dad prayed for me this morning that God would be with me. I hope God answers my dad's prayer. Because this, the default response according to that prayer pattern seems to be that he's not with me. Right? 
which is theologically totally inaccurate. A better prayer would be something like this. God, help me be with you at school today. Follow me? Help me be with you, God, at work today. Help me join you in that relationship today. In other words, enable me to remain faithful to you. Enable me to recognize your presence, because I often don't. Enable me to follow you in obedience, believing that you're right here, because that's what's ultimately true, is you're the God who is not elsewhere. You're here. God's stability is the constant. We're the ones that keep vacating, right? We're the ones that keep sort of leaving the present and leaving the here and now. God is always here. God is always with. You can count on that. You don't have to doubt that. We should pray instead that he would help us be with him. Let me end with a story. When St. Benedict, who's an Italian monk in the 6th century in Italy, started his monasteries his Christian communities, when the Roman Empire was crumbling all around him, he welcomed anybody who wanted to to join him in these monasteries. But what he did require from those who would join the communities was that they would make three vows. Do you know what the first vow was and still is? It's the vow of stability. That's where he began. That's where they still begin. The vow of stability. A monk, in other words, would promise to seek God in this place with these folks according to this rule, the handbook that was provided for that community. They would vow stability the rest of their life, this place, these people, this rule. Didn't Benedict believe that God was everywhere? Yeah, He absolutely believed that God was everywhere, but he also knew as a pastor that if you couldn't learn to experience God here, you were going to have a real hard time learning to experience God somewhere else. So the whole beautiful truth that God is everywhere makes almost no difference to any of us because we haven't learned to experience him here yet. (laughs) So who cares if he's everywhere if I don't know how to deal with him anywhere, like especially in my house or in my relationship or wherever the here is that is most difficult for me. So in the coming weeks, I want to talk about the wisdom of stability. And I want to to talk about how stability makes this powerful difference personally and in our most important relationships. And it makes a difference where life happens and stability actually moves us. In other words, we're going to talk about stability in me, stability in us, stability in here, stability in there, where we might go. But I started this morning by talking about stability in God because this is where it begins. This is the foundation. It's crucial to understand that the reason, friends, that the value of stability has been embraced by historic Christianity since the beginning is because it is such a core part of God's character. Our own stability is rooted in and dependent upon and is intended to be a reflection of God's stability, God's nature. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is always here. I can count on that. Others in my faith have counted on that. King David says, you are my rock and you are my fortress. The rock-solid reliability of God means, among other things, that we can experience God anywhere we are, and that includes right here. There are so many good reasons to embrace 
the value of stability. And the ultimate reason is simply this, that God is not somewhere else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. I want to thank you, Lord, for the blessing of place, for places that have enabled and helped me to recognize you. And I pray somehow that um, the goodness of these places would not overshadow the importance of the content of the place, which is your presence, and that I would learn in whatever place I am to, to experience your love for me. And I pray that that wherever I am would include right here, right now, that I would not let go of any place until I have an assurance of your love for me there. May we experience the everywhere God in a way that is practical enough to make a difference right here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.